Now, before we dive into John chapter 20, which is what we're going to look at today, which is the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we must understand that there was first a death. There always has to first be a death before there can be a resurrection. This is the story of salvation. And so when we usually say this, we say, well, Jesus died so that we may live. It's not 100% accurate. Jesus died so that we can or may die with Him. And He was resurrected and He lives so we can be resurrected and live in Him. And here's the problem with seeing it the first way. If you say that Jesus died so that I may live, I don't ever have to go through death denying self. That means I'm simply adding a Jesus to my life to save the life that I already have. And God says, no, God first calls us to die with Christ and then we can live for God. Amen? So we got to just look at the death of Jesus for a moment in John chapter 19. If you want to turn there with me, John chapter 19, verse 28. The Bible says, verse 28 and 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that scriptures would be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. Now, when he said, I am thirsty, he was fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy that we find in in Psalm 22, verse 15, where he said the, 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 the psalmist prophesied the coming Messiah statement where he said, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. You lay me in the dust of death. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And this is how... David saw the coming Messiah and the state in which he would be. And here we find Jesus hanging on the cross and he says, I am thirsty. Now on this statement, I am thirsty, the Prince of Preachers, they call him that, Charles Spurgeon, he says this, and I want to quote it to you. Thirst is a commonplace misery, such as may happen to peasants and beggars. Thirst is no royal grief, but an experience of universal manhood. Jesus is brother to the poorest and the most humble of our race. End quote. You see, in thirst, Jesus identifies with the poorest of all. Many go hungry, but by the time you go thirsty, because you have nothing to drink, you're the poorest of all. Jesus identifies with those who are desperate to be filled as he cries out, I am thirsty. Then in verse 29, it says, A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine and a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Now, when, when a Jew hears the word hyssop or a branch of hyssop, it triggers a thought in their mind because they practice this annually at the Seder, where you take the hyssop, the branch of hyssop, and you dip it. Now, what's significant of the hyssop is that all the way back in Moses' day, when Moses went before Pharaoh and he said, let my people go, he wouldn't, 
10 plagues came, and the 10th plague was what? The angel of death. Moses told the Israelites, the Jewish people, he said, what you need to do is take a branch of hyssop, dip it in the blood of that animal that you slaughtered, that perfect lamb, and then paint the doorpost with it. So use it basically to paint with, right? And so when they see hyssop, this is what triggers in their minds. And here the Bible says a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. You see, death did not pass, death passed over the homes in Israel or in Egypt of all the Israelites that took the hyssop and put the blood on the doorpost. Death did not pass over Jesus, however, but Jesus swallowed up death and like the better David, he conquered death on our behalf. And then verse 30, the next verse says, Therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Or he said, Tetelestai. Tetelestai, it is finished. A single word can change everything. The statement, not guilty, in court of law changes everything. When a woman says yes to a marriage proposal, it changes everything. Hearing the word goodbye or farewell could change everything forever. One word can change so much. Yet there has never been a single word that has impacted history in a more radical way than when Jesus said, Tetelestai. When Jesus said, it is finished. So at some point, before Jesus died, before the veil was ripped in two, before he cried, Tina, could you make it, Dave, could you make it one degree warmer? Don't put the heat on, just the, the air is too cool. Thank you. Before he died, before the veil was torn in two, before he cried out, it is finished, an awesome spiritual transaction took place right there 2,000 years ago on that cross. It's where God the Father laid upon God the Son all of the guilt and the wrath our sin deserved. And he, and he bore it in himself perfectly, totally, and satisfied the wrath of God against us. That's what happened right before he shouted, it is finished, till lest I. And again, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, remarks on that very statement. He says, it, referring to that statement, it is finished, Tetelestai, was a conqueror's cry. It was uttered with a loud voice. There's nothing of anguish about it, Spurgeon says. There is no wailing in it. It is the cry of one who has completed a tremendous labor, one who has won a war. This is when Jesus said, Tetelestai. As a matter of fact, most commentators say that Jesus said, I thirst, because he needed to clear his throat and loosen his tongue so he could, like a victorious warrior, shout, Tetelestai. It is finished. So I'm thinking, if he's standing there, like a victorious warrior who just won the battle and the war all by himself, 
for all of eternity. He shouts, Tetelestai, it is finished. We have to learn what specifically he meant when he said, it is finished. What was finished? What was accomplished? What was achieved? Which battle was won? First, we have to realize that the Old Testament types, promises, and prophecies were all fulfilled right there. It came to a head, the fulfillment of all things. He said, finished. They were fulfilled. They were finished and completed in Christ. Secondly, the sacrifices and ceremonies of the priesthood were completed. They were finished. Thirdly, his perfect obedience to the Father was completed and finished. The wrath of God against the sins of his chosen was finished being poured out. Because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, poured out on Jesus against your sins, poured out on Jesus instead of against you, until every last drop of God's wrath against your sin was paid for. And when it was paid for, Jesus said, it is finished. God's justice was satisfied completely. It was finished. And finally, the power of Satan, sin, and death was done with. It was overcome by Christ, and it was finished. The Bible then says, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here we know that Jesus did not hang his head in defeat. No, he bowed his head in peace. He was done. Jesus gave up his spirit, the Bible says. No one took it from him. No one took Jesus' life. He's not a martyr. He's one who gave us a gift. He gave us His life. He walked to that slaughter like a lamb, the only animal that does not retaliate when dragged to the slaughter. Now, there are many modern secularists and pagans who love floating the idea that modern-day historians are now believing that there never was such a person as Jesus Christ from Nazareth who died upon a cross. I don't know if you've heard that latest theory. There never was a Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. However, I wanted to just mention it here. If anybody wants to get this um, recording and go look it up yourself, there are ancient extra-biblical literature that mentions Jesus over and over again. The Bible is verified by many extra-biblical literature from the same era. For instance, a letter written by Mara bar Serapion wrote a letter to his son in 73 AD stating very specifically how Jesus of Nazareth was murdered by his own upon a cross. You can still find that. I searched it out last night and read it. A beautiful letter. You can read up Josephus, the Jewish historian, 90 A.D., writing all about Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified on a cross. You can read Tacitus, the Roman historian. You can read the Babylonian Talmud. And so, if anybody ever dares to say that there was, was never such a death or crucifixion of Jesus from Nazareth, absolutely false. So the question is, how do we know that Jesus rose? Do we have any proof? Well, we have many eyewitnesses. 
I wanted to mention some of the eyewitnesses of those who saw Jesus who rose from the dead, after he rose from the dead and spoke to him. First, we have Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. She was the very first to meet the risen Christ. John 20, 14. Second, we see Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and Joanna. Three ladies at one time in Matthew 28, 9 saw the risen Christ. And then thirdly, Peter saw the risen Christ in Luke 24, 34. Of course, Jesus reveals himself to Peter because Peter was the one who denied him three times before the rooster crowed. And so Peter had no confidence to face off with the risen Christ whom he just denied prior to the crucifixion. So Jesus reveals himself to, the, uh, to Peter. Peter sees the risen Christ in Luke 24, 34. And then fourthly, two disciples on the road of Emmaus, walking from one city to the next. Walking to Emmaus in Luke 24, 13, Jesus appears out of nowhere and shows himself to these two disciples and starts having a conversation with them. And then number five, we see that the disciples without Thomas sees Jesus appear behind closed doors. He's got a resurrected body. Locked doors doesn't stop a resurrected body. It can walk through walls, travel at the speed of thought. And this is the issue with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Gnosticism wants to talk it away and say Jesus is a ghost. No, Jesus is in the body. He eats fish with them. They touch his hands, his wounds, his side. But he has a resurrected body, which is what you and I are going to have when Jesus comes for us. You will have a resurrected body. When you die, your body sleeps. You are with the Lord in spirit. When Jesus returns, the Bible says, the dead shall rise first. And when the dead rise first, what happens there is that everybody picks up their bodies and their bodies are now resurrected bodies as Christ is the first resurrected of all. He is the first resurrected body of all of us. And we too will one day be as He is in a resurrected body. You too will be able to travel at the speed of thought. So here we see Jesus reveals Himself and meets with His disciples Yet Thomas was not there. This is in John 20, verse 19 and 20. And number six, we see exactly seven days later, that next Sunday, let me just say the first time Jesus meets with his disciples is a Sunday, the day they celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That next Sunday, they're meeting again, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. He shows up and Thomas is present, doubting Thomas. He touches Jesus. He sees the marks and he cries out, My Lord and my God. Number seven, Jesus again shows himself to seven disciples at the Sea of Galilee and John chapter 21. And then number eight, Jesus shows himself to more than 500 people all at the same time. This is in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 5 and 6. There, are, there were many, many eyewitnesses of Jesus at the time when the scriptures were written to verify that which was written. It's easy to come up with a story 2,000 years later and write it and say this was true. But what the credibility that is lent to the scriptures is the fact that it was written and those who were there that saw everything 
were, and were eyewitnesses to everything, critiqued what was written. So here we have 500 people see the resurrected Christ at one time in 1 Corinthians 1, 5 and 6. And then number 9, we see James, the half-brother of Jesus, meets with the resurrected Lord in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And finally, Saul of Tarsus, he gets to see Jesus and then is blinded in Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Now, I wanted to mention that to you because of the narratives that are being had today in society. You know, it started off back in, you know, with um, the Da Vinci Code where the world doesn't believe in all the materials they attempt to conjure up in order to prove that the Messiah is not alive. They just will take whatever they can in order to prove that there was never such a person as Jesus from Nazareth and there was never such a thing as Him being crucified. But from the ancient days, we have many, many um, documented eyewitnesses. Now, in Christianity and in culture, there is a certain love and connection we have with Jesus hanging on the cross. There's a certain empathy we have for and an association with the crucifixion of Christ. As humans, we identify with suffering really easily because we've experienced suffering. We identify with rejection as Jesus was rejected because we've been rejected. We identify with injustice because we've, been, we've experienced injustice. We identify with His pain hanging on that cross because we ourselves have experienced pain. So it's easy for us as humans to identify with a crucified Christ who was mistreated, rejected, and we can identify with that. And we make the cross the centerpiece of our Christianity. However, one day, after we have received our resurrected bodies, and we too now, we are as He is in resurrected life. On that day, we will be able to have the very same love, connection, and association with the resurrection as we do with the cross. You see, we have to filter this through our Christianity because we aren't saved and alive because Jesus died for us. No, that was, that was the, the entry into the gospel. But we are alive because He's alive, right? We are risen in Christ. And so we have, to, we have to identify with the resurrection as much as we identify with the cross and the death and the burial of Jesus. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13 and 19, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, we have hope, and if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, but not in the next, of course, we are of all people most to be pitied. So here Paul makes it very clear 
that as Christians, our centerpiece is not a cross. Our centerpiece is both the cross and the resurrection, the death and the resurrection, the whole baptism experience. This is what we identify with. So you cannot, as a Christian, trivialize, minimize, or ignore the resurrection. No event in history reaches the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing. The resurrection is the crowning event of God's redemptive history. The resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity. It is the foundation of the gospel. It is the guarantee of life after death. It is your guarantee of a mansion in heaven, eternity. You see, the message of the Bible is that death does not Death does not end the existence of anyone. The message of the Bible is that every human being who ever lived will live forever, either in eternal death or eternal life, either with God forever or separated God from God forever, either in everlasting suffering or everlasting joy. But every person who ever lived will live forever. That's the message of the Bible. The resurrection of Jesus, however, is a pledge is a promise to all those who live in Him to also be raised in bodily form just as He was raised. You see, the death of Christ on the cross was the payment made. The death of Christ on the cross was the payment made, while His resurrection is the proof that His payment was not just sufficient, but also accepted. John 20, verse 17 through 18. Let's walk through a few of these verses. Jesus said to her in John 20, verse 17, Stop clinging, clinging, clinging to me. Speaking about Martha. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that He has said these things to her. It's an amazing thing. Jesus made a woman the first witness of His resurrection. Even though the law courts of the day would not recognize the testimony of a woman, you couldn't call a woman in to testify in court back in the day. And even though the law courts of the day would not recognize a woman's testimony, Jesus certainly did. There is this beautiful picture of redemption in this verse. You see, in the Garden of Eden... Right after the fall, sorrow fell upon the woman because she was the first one to be deceived. Now, in a different garden, in the garden where Christ was buried after His resurrection, the message of hope and comfort first comes to a woman before anyone else. And how God redeems the sinner and the fallen, no matter who you are. You see, if you were living in those days and you were the one writing the Bible, and you came up with stories, you would not have used a woman to be the first one to testify of a risen Christ. That would cause everybody to not believe you. But here Jesus goes, I know what I'm doing. I'm redeeming humanity, and I'm starting with the one who fell first. It's a beautiful picture of redemption. Then Jesus says to her, Mary, Magdalene, go to my brothers and say to them. 
You know, consider the fact that all Jesus' disciples, except for John, had forsaken him at the crucifixion. They had all gone. They all ran away. They were all hiding, denying him as he was hanging on that cross all by himself with the exception of John. So it is touching to see that Jesus referred to his disciples as brothers. <laughs> you see, in the past, Jesus refers to his disciples as servants. He's always dis uh, called his disciples friends. But now that he has risen from the dead, he calls them brothers. John 20, verse 19. Let's go to the next portion. It says, Now when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were together due to the fear they had for the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst, in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. Can everybody please say, Peace be to you. Peace be to you. Peace be to you. You see, after deserting Jesus on the day of His crucifixion, the disciples probably expected um, words of rebuke. Like, okay, where were you guys? Here I am. I rose. I told you I would, and I did. But you guys, especially you, Peter, who said, I will never deny you. Yeah, every one of you did. Thank you very much, except for John. Every one of you. I can only imagine if that was me, that it was probably, if I rose from the dead after everybody left me, that's probably going to be the meeting I was going to have with him. Thanks a lot. Now do you believe? <laughs> so that's what they were expecting. But what did they get? Peace be to you. Peace. Be at peace. Be at peace, everybody. You might say, well, yeah, I didn't deny Jesus, but I did a lot of other stuff. Peace be to you in Christ. Oh, God, I have so many regrets. Peace be to you in Christ. It's not about this life. Regrets in this life is only to help you untangle yourself from this life so that you can leave it all behind. <laughs> Peace be to you, Jesus says. Let's go to John 20, verse 20 and 21. The next portion, it says, And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Second time, peace be to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I now send you. All you broken people, I send you. Peace be to you. Now go. You see, Jesus did not come in the midst to show them a new thought. He, he, he didn't come to show them a new way of thinking, because the Greeks were really into that, right? He didn't philosophize or even have a deep doctrinal discussion or profound mystery or indeed anything. What did he do? He showed himself. That's all it was. Here I am. Feel my hands. Now peace be to you. I send you. All you need is to see Christ, to see Jesus. You see, Jesus had faced and defeated everything that destroyed man's peace with God. And when Jesus said, peace be unto you, he meant some very, very specific things. 
You see, he was not suggesting they just calm down, everybody, simmer down. That's not what he was saying. He was not wishing they would be more tranquil and relaxed in his presence. That's not what, that was not his goal. No, he was making an absolute declaration. When we read the Bible, we don't read it in the volume and the intensity of Jesus. But Jesus declared on the cross, Tetelestai, like a, like a victorious warrior who just conquered sin, death, and hell all by himself. He shouted it. And here Jesus says, peace be to you. He was declaring it to them. He was imparting a blessing. He was saying, things have changed. He was announcing God's approval on them. Peace. God approves of you now. Stop running around like you are not approved by God. Stop hiding like you did around the cross. Stop being so timid about that. God declares approval. He says, peace. He declares it over them. So today the risen Christ says the exact same words to you. Peace to you. To bring it down to an even more understandable level, what Jesus is communicating to you this morning, He's declaring over those of you who have repented to the Father and put your faith in Jesus Christ because that's salvation. When the apostles preached in the, in the Gospels, and excuse me, in Acts, they were preaching what? Repentance toward God. In other words, a turning away from self toward God. A turning away from your sinful life toward God. Turning away from serving self towards serving God. That's repentance toward God. And faith in Jesus Christ. That what He did is sufficient for you to be forgiven. What He did is sufficient for you to be accepted. What He did on the cross was sufficient to make you righteous as He is righteous. What He did upon the cross now gives you the right to come into the presence of God and call Him Father. So what they preached in the book of Acts was repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. This is salvation. And what Jesus is communicating to you and I today, that He's declaring over you and I who have repented toward God and have put faith in Jesus Christ, He's saying peace to you because your sins are forgiven. 2,000 years ago, they were paid. What about my sins of tomorrow? Well, those are included in that payment. What about my sins of next year? Well, those sins, too, they were also included in the payment that took place 2,000 years ago. Your sins, the sins of your life, has been paid in full. Tetelestai. What if I hear, or what if I live a day longer than God planned and I sin in that last day of my life. And Jesus didn't get to pay that last day of my life. Folks, no. <laughs> you don't live one day longer than God has planned. So when He said peace to you, He says peace to you. Why? Because your sins in Christ have been forgiven. When He said peace to you, He said peace to you because your slavery to sin is now broken. 
You are no longer a slave to the controlling master called sin. He doesn't control you. Why not? Because you can now repent and turn away from Him. He's broken over your life. When He said peace to you, He said it because your life is settled for eternity. You have been settled. It's in stone. Why? Your name is written in a book. When was it written? Before the foundations of the earth. Your name is written in the book of life. Your life is settled for all eternity. But he doesn't stop there, and we're going to finish with this. Think of how Jesus was sent by the Father. He said, just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. You see, Jesus was not sent as a philosopher, like Plato or Aristotle, though he knew a higher philosophy than they did. Jesus was not sent as an inventor or a discoverer. Jesus was not sent as a conqueror of a nation. He was not sent as a politician. He never participated, though he was mightier than Alexander the Great. His kingdom was not of this world. Jesus was sent to teach God's Word. He was sent to us to teach God's will. He was God's Word revealed to us. Jesus was sent to live among us. Jesus was sent to suffer. He was sent to suffer for truth's sake. And for righteousness' sake, Jesus was sent to rescue men from their own sin and the consequences of their sin. And so today, I pray that we will understand that to follow Jesus means what it meant to the disciples back in the day. When they said they are Christ followers or when they followed Jesus, that wasn't just, that wasn't just you know, lip service. They knew what it meant to follow Christ. And what it meant to them is what it means to us today. To die with Him in His death. That's the first step in following Christ. To die to self. To rise with Him in resurrection. To live for Him. And then to be sent into this world just as He was sent into the world to preach God's plan of salvation for man. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Father, thank you so much for your...